and it ought not be just about reducing child support. These are children. They need both parents, both emotionally and financially. If at all possible, you should be working together with the mother or the father to find the best outcomes for not just you, but for your children. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 281 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Child support payments. How do you calculate these and who does that? And does Salary sacrificing super, for example, or investment losses, do those reduce support payments or what else reduces support payments? These are just some of the questions Simon Bacon of Mandy and Scott in Melbourne will discuss with you. Child support covers actually quite a bit more than child support as well. It can cover adult child maintenance, child support itself terminates when the child turns 18 normally. And then after the child turns 18, if the child is still at uni or school or has a disability, something called adult child maintenance can cut in. So we also do adult child maintenance. Often there's a spousal maintenance component as well. It's not only the child who needs supporting, it's the spouse. Typically it's the mother who ends up looking after the child and the mother says, well, I, only, I not only want support for the child, child support, but I also want support for me because I'm staying home looking after your child and that's called spousal maintenance. And I do a bit of spousal maintenance as well. Is it usually that the father is the paying parent and the mother is the receiving parent or is that slowly changing? Well, that's still very much normally the case. Normally, mum and dad separate, mum takes the children and dad pays the child support. And it's by no means the only type of scenario which arises. But the prominent one. That's the prominent one. Historically, that's been the case. It's becoming less the case, but it's still very mm. much the case. So, look, I, I suppose the best place to start is to say that normally child support is calculated by a Commonwealth department called, they keep changing their name, but if we call them the Child Support Agency, everybody will know what we're talking about. I think currently the, the Department of Human Services Child Support is how they describe themselves. But if we just call it the Child Support Agency, there's a Commonwealth government department that is responsible, for, at least initially, for child support. And once parents separate, the person with the children in his or her care goes to the child support agency and says, look, I want child support. And so an application is submitted by that person. And then essentially the child support agency looks at both parents' tax returns and various other bits of information. And they put those figures into a computer where the computer applies a formula and outspits an amount that the payer has to pay to the payee. It's a very complicated formula. 15 years ago, before they changed it, we could all kind of work it out in our heads, but now you simply can't. It's just too complicated. 
there's a, a calculator on the child support agency website that people can go to and plug in all the all the details and it spits out, out the figure but essentially the formula look, looks at both parties taxable incomes okay the starting point is taxable income it can get a, a lot more complicated than that but the starting point is taxable income taxable income and not assessable income meaning expenses work related deductions etc they are all taken into account yes the tax office takes all those off assessable income and comes up with a taxable income figure and then the child support agency goes to the tax office and says what are these parties taxable incomes the tax office gives the, the taxable incomes then the child support agency puts that into its formula and then the agency also looks at the uh, ages of the children as the children grow older the amount of child support payable in relation to them increases i think that it changes at age 13 at age 13 as soon as a child becomes 13 a higher set of costs apply then the child support agency looks at how much care each parent has of the child or the children and that becomes relevant in the calculation if a payer has a child at least once a week in his or her care so 14% of the time the child support gets reduced by 24% to take into account the fact that the payer has that child uh, and is therefore incurring some costs in relation to that child then the formula also looks at any other dependents that the various parties have often it's the case that you know parents separate and then they both go off and have new children or new relationships whatever and the formula tries to take into account the fact there are more children out there that need to be, be supported not just the children from the first relationship so that becomes relevant as well so the child support agency produces a figure of child support payable and in most cases the parties just accept that and they pay it but there are various cases where uh, the parties find that to be unacceptable and one of the more important cases is where one of the parties is self-employed so that party has the ability to manipulate his or her income in ways that a PAYE taxpayer doesn't for instance dad might be a plumber say and dad works through a company structure so mm, he tax. charges all of his yeah for, for tax he charges his customers or his company charges his customers for the work done and then the company makes all the money and it pays the father uh, a small wage now the system recognizes and there are many many different ways that 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 people can manipulate their affairs that's one or perhaps the 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 father the plumber is running a um is splitting income with his new partner so is his income is being halved and there are many at trusts and cash dealings and many many other ways that people can manipulate their income but that often produces um the situation where that person we're using the example example of a plumber where the plumber his taxable income is artificially low and that creates the situation where mum becomes unhappy because she's not as rec receiving as much child support as she otherwise would and that's where child support starts to become a lot more interesting to a lawyer
typically then it's the mother, the person receiving child support. She can go off to the child support agency or she can go to the court in some circumstances and say, look, this is unfair because his real income, I lived with him for 20 years. I know his real income is about 200000 But look at this, his taxable income is only 30000 and either the child support agency or the court will then investigate that and and look at the payer's broader financial circumstances. The Act, to anyone who's interested, uh, it's Section 117.2C of the Act. That's the Child Support Assessment Act, which is a 1989 Act of the Commonwealth Parliament. That allows either the court or the agency to go behind or to, as some, some people call, lift the corporate veil and look at actually what's going on. This plumber who's driving around in a new ute and has got a big workshop and is employing four people really only has a taxable income of 30000 a year. The system can go beyond the taxable income and look at that person's broader financial circumstances. Simon, I have two questions for you. The first one is we looked at child support assessments now. When I tried to educate myself a little bit about this topic, I learned that there are basically four types of arrangements. You can do self-management, you can do child support assessments, which you just discussed, mm -hmm. you can do a child support agreement, and you can do a court order child support, which you also touched on. I think you just mentioned that most arrangements are child support assessments. And I can imagine the majority of the remaining arrangements would be child support agreements. I can imagine that very, very few would be just self-managed where there is no assessment and no agreement. And I can also imagine that only very hard core cases would go to the court. So yes. is it fair to say that most arrangements are child support assessments, meaning they go through the um, through the Services Australia government department, you know, which, uh, which name constantly changes? Yes. Or otherwise it would be a child support agreement. Can you put percentages on it? How? What percentage would be an assessment and what percentage would be an agreement? Although it's probably difficult for you to say because you only see the agreements. You don't see all the thousands of cases that would just be an assessment, correct? That is correct. And I really can't answer that question. No doubt the, the agency has about 1.5 million customers. And the vast majority of those are going to be child support assessments. In my own experience, perhaps one in 10 or so cases are child support agreements. I see. Uh, and, and child support agreements would usually be where the parents are quite reasonable. They are seeking an, an acrimonial arrangement. Ac acrimonial means being nice, doesn't it? No, acrimonious means being nasty. Um, oh, I see. Okay, good. <laughs> Sorry. So uh, the parents with the child support agreement, the parents are usually trying to avoid an ac acrimonial confrontation yes. and they're trying to come up with something that everybody is happy with for the sake of the children. Yes. The, now, now, the word you think you were looking for is amicable. Ah, amicable. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people don't like dealing with the child support agency. It's intrusive. It, for instance, sends both parties each other's taxable incomes every year. Some people don't like that. Some people don't like children is uh, interfered with and ruled by a government department in Canberra that's got no knowledge of their individual circumstances and just applies a formula. And other people have other reasons for not liking ch child support. Some people just find it a very stressful process going to the mailbox 
and constantly receiving co correspondence from the Child Support Agency or Services Australia, as they're now calling themselves. It can be quite, quite a stressful process and it's a process that generates a lot of correspondence. And therefore, for one reason or another, some people just don't want to deal with the agency. So when I see those people, if they are amicable with each other, we can often uh, put in place what's called a binding child, well, a, a child support agreement. There are two types of child support agreements, binding child support agreements and non-binding child support agreements. But let's just talk about binding child support agreements because they're the most useful ones. So people come in and see me and say, look, we're not happy with this child support arrangement because of A, B or C. We've concluded that we want this to happen. And those arrangements can be put into a binding child support agreement. Essentially, it's a contract. It's a contract that I draw up for somebody or their lawyer draws up and then it gets sent to me for review. And essentially, the parties agree in the provision of child support to each other. And that agreement then gets registered at the child support agency and at the family court. And it becomes a legally enforceable agreement, essentially a contract. And henceforth, the child support arrangements are determined not by child support assessment. The child support agency uh, is rarely even in the background anymore. These agreements get registered and people just pay in accordance with the agreement. Would you say that most agreements are binding child support agreements or have you also seen non-binding child support agreements? Uh, the phrase is actually limited uh, child yes, support. Yes, that was going to be my next question. What yeah. is a limited uh, child support yeah. agreement? It's an agreement that isn't as binding. For instance, a binding child support agreement needs to be signed off on by a lawyer or a lawyer has to sign a certificate saying, I've advised my client about the nature of this agreement and he or she has decided to en enter into it. Limited child support agreements as well only run for limited periods of time and they can be changed much easier than uh, binding child support agreements. Most people who have come to an agreement about their child support want it to be in stone, want it to be binding and to cover them. They want certainty. Payers want to know what they have to pay so they can go off and they can do whatever they want at work or organise themselves in any in any way they want and they know they're not going to have any child support issues. Payees want to know what they're going to receive. And so most people want these things put into stone as much as possible. Mm. By the way, no child support agreement is ever in stone. Okay, A court can always override a child support agreement, but to the extent that it can be put into stone or carved, carved into stone, a binding child support agreement gets you pretty close to it. Yes, and so a binding child support agreement could be changed if the circumstances of the paying parent, for example, changes. For example, they, they are made redundant or they have a change in lifestyle and decide to work less. When any of those circumstances change, then I assume you can change the binding child support agreement, correct? Correct. The preferable way would be for the parties to again get together and discuss these changes and see if they can agree upon the changes. So a new binding child support agreement can be made. Yes. But often you can imagine where dad is committed to a, be to pay a, a large amount of child support and loses his job. Mum's not going to necessarily concede to that. And so if dad's unhappy with it, he has to go to court under Section 136 of the Act and get the child support agreement annulled. 
I see. And then it would go back to a child support assessment, taking the new circumstances into account. Well, the court can make any orders at once. Generally speaking, the court will do that. Yes, the court will say, right, we're discharging this agreement and the case is going back to the agency and the agency can make an administrative assessment. I can imagine that the uh, couples seeking a child support agreement would usually be more affluent. There would be more there would be more assets involved. And I can also imagine that a child support agreement usually gives the uh, caring parents, so quite often the mother, gives the caring parent a higher support payment than she would otherwise get through an assessment. Is that fair to say? Yes, yes, it is. In fact, the system's quite complicated. Someone on Centrelink benefits, so the, the lower socioeconomic groups that you're not talking about here, they often are not allowed to enter into child support agreements and still get the pension or the uh, Centrelink payment. So child support agreements tend to be the preserve of affluent people. And yes, the issue is why would mum agree to a child support agreement unless she's going to get at least the same as she would through a child support agency assessment? So generally, they involve larger amounts of money and they also involve the payments of money that involve third parties as well. So mum agrees that dad will pay a significant portion of his child support, for instance, to private school fees. Dad's happy because although he's paying more overall, he can see where the money's going and he wants his children to have a private school education. So he's happy to pay more. Mum's obviously happy to receive more overall and that's often the catalyst uh, that causes people to enter in, into these agreements. And also, as I was saying before, you've got control over it. Your responsibilities for your children are not being controlled by some public servant in Canberra. They're being controlled and run by the two parents, which is really how it should be. In fact, the Act itself, in Section 4 of the Act, it makes it clear that as much as possible, child support is to be um, uh, governed uh, in such a way as to maintain the privacy of people and not have public servants interfere themselves with the parenting decisions that parents make. My second question is in regards to child support assessments. And you mentioned before that child support is calculated on a, based on a number of things. One is the number of nights that the child spends with each parent and that for the paying parent, the support payments drop by 24% as soon as the child spends one night a week with them. Yes. And I can imagine that that is a minefield because it is quite a big cut. It's it's a quarter of the payments for one night a week. Mm. And so my question is, do you see it quite often that mothers fight against this one night a week because it costs them it costs them 25% or 24% of their child support? Oh, yes, yes, you certainly do. And the 24% figure is only the first figure. It drops again if the contact rises uh, above 35%. And around those nights, so one night a week, for instance, the 14% figure is 52 nights a year, obviously. And a lot of cases spend a lot of time at court arguing whether dad's contact should be 51 nights a, a year or 52 nights a year. These artificial distinctions in the child support system, which mean big changes in child support payments, both payable and receivable, cause a lot of issues with child contact or child access. Hmm. Those marginal days mean a lot and people fight a great deal over them. 
this setup really disadvantages the children. On the premises, a child needs both their parents and that contact with both parents is very um, important for their development. And so basically penalizing the mother for additional nights spent with the father, yeah. I, I can imagine harms the child in the end because it gives the mother a, a financial incentive to reduce the father's access to the children. Yes. Now, of course, it is more complicated than that because the, the fathers would say, well, it costs me money to have the children. For instance, I need a two-bedroom apartment, whereas I would have only had a one-bedroom apartment because they have to stay somewhere. I have to feed them. You know, I have to entertain them and all those things. It's not a zero-sum game. The, 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 it does cost the fathers money to have the contact. And yes, so I agree. It's, it's only fair that there'd be some kind of reduction. But these stepped reductions, a lot of us say, are completely artificial. Another way to do it would be just to say, well, what proportion of the year do you see the child? Okay, the child support assessment gets reduced by that proportion. And then you wouldn't have these fights about marginal days and so on and so forth. How strong is the father's position to see the children for half of the time? Is that the starting point of all negotiations, that access to the children is shared 50-50, or do the fathers start on a back foot with that? Okay, well, that's actually not a child support question. That's more of a general family law question. But generally speaking, family law says the children should have equal contact with both parents. That's the general position, and then the court may change from that depending on the circumstances of any particular case. But even if the parents both have the children 50-50, that doesn't necessarily mean there will be no child support payable. Because yes, because one may... earns more than the other. Yes, yes. Mm. So there are basically three agreements. One is about the assets, the asset split, who gets what real estate, who gets what bank account. Then there is an agreement or an assessment about who has what access to the children, who can make what parenting decision. And then there's a third agreement about the child support payments in itself. And are all these three completely separate or are they all negotiated and decided in one in one go? No, well, they're, they're, they're very interlinked. As we've just discussed, you've seen how child support can change if access to the children change. But generally speaking, what would happen is that parties go off to the family court or the federal circuit court at one point and they try and resolve all issues at the one time. Now, when I say go to court, often people can agree. They don't have to go to court and have a big litigious fight. But in one way or another, most family law breakups end up with court orders being made, whether they be consent orders or, or non-consent orders. But ideally, you would resolve all of those three issues at the same time. You'd have your property settlement split. You'd have your arrangements regarding the uh, contact with the children split. And those orders would also cover child support as well. Simon, just a question now about your role, because you specialise in child support payments. When all three questions or all three assessments or agreements need to basically just be decided in one go, but you only cover one of them, how do you work with whoever covers the other two? Okay, well, most cases in court are actually consent cases. So the parties come to an agreement and then they say to their lawyers, we've reached this agreement, please formalise it. And a consent order application is made to the court. Now, I can quite easily do all three of those things in a consent order. 
The difficulty for me arises is when I'm having a dispute about child support that has to go to court and also the parties can't agree upon property settlement or children that also has to go to court. There can only be one court case and it makes it difficult for me as a child support lawyer to participate too heavily in the broader case. So what would generally happen is there would be two uh, legal teams. One lawyer is formally on the record, whether it's me or my other colleague lawyer acting for the particular client, and then we work together on the case to ensure that both the child support and the other components get the attention that they deserve. So one court case, one lawyer on the record, but I come in essentially, if you like, as a consultant on the child support issues. Do you find that access to the children is often bargained with or asset splits? It shouldn't be, of course, because the two things should always be completely separate. The, the access with the children or contact, as it's currently called. Yeah, sorry, um, contact. The words uh, keep changing. In fact, I don't even think contact is the correct word at the moment. At the, wo okay, at, at time the time spent. being, is time spent, yes. Okay, time yeah, spent. Uh, okay, well, let's not get bogged down in, in the yeah. semantics of the whole thing. But it, it, those decisions about when the parents see the children should be based solely on what's in the children's best interests. But there's often trade-offs which occur. Custodial parents, the parents looking after the children will say, look, if you give me more child support, I won't make it difficult for you to see the children. Um, that, that should not ever happen in, a, in an ideal world, but quite frankly, it happens all the time in practice. What happens to the child support payments if the uh, time spent is not honoured? So, for example, the assessment says the father has the right to see their children every second weekend and two days a week or whatever is agreed. If then the custodial parent doesn't honour that and makes makes it difficult, for example, doesn't answer the phone when the father calls or is away when the father comes to pick yeah. up the children, whatever little games are played there, What happens to the child support payments? I assume those are just ticking along as usual, even though the other side of the agreement doesn't hold their, yes. their obligations. Look, the view of the child support agency is that the child support discount for contact will only be given if the contact is actually given. Okay. So if, for instance, the mother stops the contact, then she can ring the agency and say the father didn't see the children the last month, I want my child support increased. Now, the law, though, says that it's it's a very complicated uh, set of uh, sections of the uh, uh, of the Act, but essentially the agency is also required to make an assessment about whether the parties have acted reasonably. Now, if in your example, the agency has concluded the mother has behaved irresponsibly or unreasonably, it will still allow the father's contact discount to stay in place, even though the contact itself hasn't occurred. Generally, what the agency will want to see is that the father goes and sees a lawyer and instructs the lawyer to write to the mother or the mother's lawyers and say, look, you didn't give me contact. Unless you give me contact and make up contact, I'll be taking you back to court. And if the agencies can see that kind of correspondence, it will generally assume the father's behaved reasonably and will give, still give him his contact discount, even though it hasn't happened. Those cases, uh, often they often involve quite small amounts of money. And obviously, they involve parties who are highly litigious and highly aggrieved uh, against each other. And they often find themselves in the AAT. So no matter what decision the child support agency makes, 
the mother or the father, the aggrieved party, then goes off to the AAT, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, and runs a case there. It's a jurisdiction where it doesn't cost anything to file the application and there are no costs payable if you lose. So the tribunal must be full of these cases, arguing about very small amounts of money. Talking about collection of money, I have read that there are two types. One is private collect and one is child support collect. And I can imagine child support collect means that the child support is withheld directly from any tax refund or is directly included in pay as you go withholding, whereas private collect is then probably a private agency. And I can imagine that would be very rare. I can imagine most of it would be through child support collect. Is that right? Yes, most cases a child support agency collect. And if the mother is in receipt of Commonwealth payments, then uh, it has to be by way of uh, child support agency collection. Now, let me just, this is an important point, perhaps the, uh, the fundamental underlying point about child support. Child support is not really about children. Child support is about Commonwealth expenditures. Okay, you may remember... In 1989, Bob Hawke stood up in Parliament, the Prime Minister at the time, and said, by 1990, no Australian child will live in poverty. And that was the time the child support legislation was passed. And essentially, what the legislation does, it, it, it takes these, these maintenance debts that used to be called maintenance debts, and the Commonwealth says, right, these debts are now our debts. We will collect this money on behalf of payers of child support. And then when the money is collected, the Commonwealth Child Support Agency Department, Services Australia at the moment, tells Centrelink and Centrelink reduced the amount of what used to be called, no doubt it's changed, single mother's pension. The amount of single mother's pension paid to custodial mothers, normally it's mothers, is reduced by about 50 cents for every dollar the Commonwealth can collect from the payer. So it's called child support but it's really a way of the Commonwealth deferring part of its social welfare expenditure to the fathers. The system is essentially saying to fathers, those are your children, you support them. We, the taxpayers of Australia, are not going to. And that's really why we have a child support system, and that ties in very closely with what you're talking about, agency collect. Most child support cases are agency collect. The Commonwealth Department is set up to collect this money and it's given all the powers that the tax man is given to collect the money, including tax refund, refund intercepts and departure prohibition orders. All those tools are given to the child support agency as well to collect the money because whatever money the Commonwealth collects, it's actually saving itself 50 cents in every dollar from the from the welfare budget. I have another question for you, Simon, and that, that is a little bit of an odd question. When I was reading about child support, I came across an information that really surprised me, and that is that fathers only have 28 days after they are being served a child support notice. They only have 28 days after that to request a DNA test to confirm paternity. That 28-day cutoff really surprised me. Is that right? Well, these things change change all the time. The last time I had a case, it was 56 days. But whether it's 56 days or 28 days, yes, uh, it's a relatively short period of time. Now, that is what the Act says, but the Act also gives the court permission to extend that time 
if at any time beyond that period of time, whether it be 28 days or 56 days, if the father believes he's not the father of the child, he can bring what's called a Section 107 application in the court to, the, well, the first step in such a case would be that the parties undergo DNA testing. Mm. Um, and then what is the result if the DNA test comes back and actually shows that the child is not the biological child of the father? Does it then mean that the father is out of any support payments? Yes, well, that is something that happens a lot more frequently than what you might think. But yes, essentially the child support assessment stops and typically the father will then say to me, well, I want to get my money back. I've been paying her child support for 15 years and I want it back. And under Section 143 of the Child Support Assessment Act, the court is empowered to order that the mother pay it back. In reality, though, often the mothers are not worth suing because they simply don't have the sort of asset base um, that would warrant a court making a re an order for repayment. And the courts are very mindful of that. They realise that it's a very deceitful act and therefore they're... they're the courts are reasonably minded to entertain the application. As long as mum has got something worth going after in terms of an asset base, the, the, the applications can be successful. Of course, though, the court's also got to weigh up the best interests of the child. And it's very rarely the best interest of the child that mother be uh, bankrupted to repay monies to dad. So it's, a, it's, it's an area fraught with difficulty and also one fraught with utter deceit. It's a very mm. difficult area. So if the DNA test comes back uh, saying it's not the biological child, then all obligations towards the child stop, even if the father has raised the child for a long time while, while married. But all this changes when it's an adopted child. When it's an adopted child, then, of course, the DNA test is completely irrelevant and the father's obligations towards the child are completely independent of, of DNA, correct? Correct, yes. And... It's even the case that without adoption, if the relationship between the father and the child, or let's call the child the stepchild, if the relationship between the stepchild and the father is a very close one over a long period of time, a child support obligation can even arise. It's an obligation under the Family Law Act to pay child maintenance, even though there's no adoption. Do you mind if I just very quickly run through some uh, questions? So basically jump uh, jump from one topic to the other. Sure. Um, the first one, just I just want to confirm, I think you already said it, but the binding child support agreement or just child support agreements in general usually result in a higher support payment than the um, assessment by Services Australia, correct? Uh, correct, yes. You would have to ask yourself, why would a payee agree to less? And so... Generally, to get the payee's consent, the amount overall has to be higher. Yes. And then the payer probably agrees to the agreement because it probably gives them more access, more contact, more time with the children than they might have otherwise. Well, that, that ought not ever be occurring in a family law case. Contact with the children should be on the basis of what's in the children's best interest. But yes, as a matter of practicality, the mother may say to the father, give me more and I'll make it easier for you to have contact with the children. But that's not the only reason. Dad may want uh, the certainty of a child support agreement. He may want the ability to pay some of the money, not directly to the mother, but to the school or the doctor or the dentist. 
and so on. So there are many motivations that men have. It's not just about getting easier access with the children. Yes, that leads to my next question. The um, payments that come out of the Services Australia assessment, they vary. They vary every year based on taxable income and based on a number of nights spent, correct? So an agreement gives the mother more certainty and gives the father more certainty as well, correct? Yes, yes. It gives both parties more certainty and also they've got some ability to influence the outcome. If you leave it to the child support agency assessment, the child support computer in Canberra tells you how you should be parenting your children, at least from a financial point of view. Whereas a child support agreement allows the parties to have some influence over the outcome. My next question is whether child support is always calculated based on income. And I think the answer is no. If it's an assessment, it's calculated based on income and number of nights and comparison of the two incomes, etc. And if it's an agreement, it's usually a fixed amount, correct? Yes. Now, but remember what I was saying before about how the assessment starts at taxable income, but... It doesn't end at taxable income. If someone is manipulating their taxable income, either the court or the child support agency can look beyond the taxable income that the tax man says this person has earned and go and lift the corporate veil and go behind that and say, well, look, uh, he's not declaring income from the company or he's splitting income with his new wife and that's not fair. So yes. it's not correct yes. to say it's just based on taxable income. That's the starting point not the ending yes. point. Yes. And the court can pierce through the corporate veil and look at the company and can look at income splitting, etc. But of course, if there is if there's work done for cash, if the plumber does a lot of cash jobs on the side to keep his income artificially low, then of course, that is a lot harder to, to prove. And then you basically yeah, join forces with the ATO because the ATO has an, has an interest in this as well. Yeah, well, in my experience, the ATO doesn't tend to get too involved in those child support cases. In in that scenario, even the child support agency will say to the mother, well, where's your proof? And she doesn't ha have any proof. The clients like that may then sometimes come to me and we have to forensically build a case. So you might look at how the man's assets have changed in the last five years versus his income. Yeah, what cars might, he drives, etc. What car he drives. You may even have a private investigator do some uh, investigation. But it's costly and it's unpredictable. Next question is about self-support income. I came across this when I read about it and I read that every parent has a self-support amount of 25,000 per year to live on. And I was quite surprised. That is very tough. You know, yes. 25,000 to live on. It, of course, it depends on where you live and you live, but it would be extremely tough to live on that in, in the capital cities. Sure. Now, look, that $25,000 figure can change depending if the parent has other dependents. Okay. And it's important to realize that you don't pay 100% of your income in child support above the 25,000. You only pay a portion of it. Now, the formula is very complicated, but as a rough rule of thumb, I always say a man is going to be spending about 15% of anything in excess of $25,000 on his child support for one child. So effect it's not a 100% rate of charge above 25,000. It's only a 15% charge. So if you earn another 100,000, if your income becomes 125,000, you only pay $15,000 in child support on my rough analysis. 
Do government payments go into the support payment calculations? So JobKeeper, JobSeeker, New Start Allowance, pension payments, etc. Does that go into the child support payment calculation the for an assessment? The calculator uses taxable income. So if those benefits are taxable, and as I understand it, JobKeeper is, yes. for instance, then that will work its way into the child support okay. calculation at some point. Okay. So whatever goes into your taxable income, that's what it's calculated on. Yes. So my next question leads back to the first question I asked you about the 24% when the child spends one night with the parent. I read that if a parent provides at least 65% of care, then they don't have to pay any child support. So I can imagine that there can be quite often a tug of war as well around the 65% percent do you see that or is that 65 percent less prominent in the um, in the um, arguments no it's certainly the case that you don't pay child support if you have the child with you 65 percent of the time um, and that often in a case is what people aim for it's exactly the same argument as as the 14 percent rate okay people aim for these particular percentage rates of child contact because of the child support implications of that. And yes, definitely I've seen cases where people have argued about that last night to take you from 64% to 65% because the dollar, the resultant dollar difference can be quite amazing in some cases. Can I talk with you about some measures to decrease child support payments? We already touched a little bit on it. Yeah. The first one, I have been asked about a number of times now is a super contribution, salary sacrificed personal contributions. However, salary sacrifice contributions are reported on the tax return under IT2 and hence the ATO knows about them and I understand that they are added back to the child support income calculations, hence there's no point in salary sacrificing super. Correct, yes. Now, when I have said the child support agency uses the taxable income. It in fact uses the taxable income and then adds various things back to it. For instance, it adds back any contributions above the 9.5% to, to stop people artificially reducing their income by putting more money into super. Negatively geared property losses are added back to taxable income as well. So you can't run a whole suite of negatively geared properties at a loss, reduce your taxable income and pay no child support. Those things are added back. The child support agency keeps changing the words of these things. But uh, the last time I looked, that was called the adjusted taxable income. So the agency in its calculations actually doesn't use taxable income. It uses adjusted taxable income. Takes taxable income and adds various things back to it, such as excess superannuation contributions. Another way to reduce or avoid child support payments would be to go overseas, but only if you go to a country that doesn't have an agreement with Australia. And when I looked at the website, it is quite a long list of countries that have agreements with Australia, US, UK, Germany, France, Ireland, England, yeah. they all have agreements with Australia. Hence, going overseas, there would be no point because it would just be as enforced 
over there as it is here. Are there certain countries that stick out that don't have an agreement? The first one that comes to mind is Israel. I was very surprised to read that Israel doesn't have a reciprocating agreement with Australia. Are there any other countries that are common refugee territories for <laughs> refugee territories for people escaping the long arm of the law? Now, look, the world is divided into two types of uh, countries, reciprocating jurisdictions where Australia has gone to that country and entered into an agreement to both comply and enforce e each other's rules and non-reciprocating jurisdictions. What I think you will generally find is if you want to live anywhere in the world that's reasonably pleasant, it's going to be a reciprocating jurisdiction. Now, I didn't actually know that Israel is a non-reciprocating jurisdiction. Let me look on my website here. And I can have a look and I can tell you. Countries that are excluded jurisdictions, yep. and there are you know, quite a few that I've never heard of, Brunei, Darussalam, Papua New Guinea, Samoa, but also Israel. Yeah. You don't have arrangements for child support for the following countries, and there's Israel, which really surprised me because some areas of Australia have very close links with Israel. Yes. So it surprised me that that is yes. non-reciprocating. Um, Well, we've obviously got an extradition treaty with Israel because they sent back yes, I know. Malka Leifel recently. Look, these things, I think, to some degree, are just random. It's about whether the various Commonwealth departments have got around to doing it. What I say to people generally is there are easier ways to fix your child support problem than going overseas. Now, if you're an Israeli citizen and you've lived in Australia for 10 years, then you could conceivably go back to Israel, I suppose, and try and avoid your child support obligations if you wanted to, given they appear to be a non-reciprocating jurisdiction. But for most people, that's not really possible. Anywhere in the world you would actually want to go is going to be a reciprocating jurisdiction. There are exceptions, but it's not really a practical way of avoiding the child support for most people. And mm. even if it is, It, does, it often doesn't stop the child support being levied against you in Australia. If you step back into Australia, you may well still have a debt and the agency may well put a departure prohibition order on you to stop you leaving. How easily are the uh, support payments enforced overseas? Is it quite a nightmare? So let's say dad has moved to Canada and started a new life there. Is it quite easy to enforce it? It just is withheld from his income as pay as you go withholding or from his tax refund as it would be in Australia? Or is it a lot more red tape to get through? Well, there is obviously a little more red tape because what essentially happens is the child support agency goes to its, in your example, Canadian colleague. And sometimes in Canada and the US, it's a state-based thing, not a Commonwealth, not, not a national-based system. So the Australian agency would go to a provincial child support agency in Canada, one in, say, Ontario, it would deal with the Ontario child support authorities. And sooner or later, the, the Ontario authorities are going to be able to collect the money, pay it to the Australian agency, who will pay it back to the mother in yes. Australia. And it probably works the same way if the mother moves to Canada, because she is from Canada and her parents live in Canada and she wants to be close to her parents. So if the mother moves back to Canada, she can still enforce the support payments from the dad who stayed in Australia? Well, the general rule is that the, the country or the province, whatever, where the mother and the child live, assess the child support. So if mum went back to Canada, she would have a Canadian assessment raised 
and then the Canadian authorities would just enforce that through the Australian Child Support Agency. question and that is the the asset split quite often it's about the family home very often I think the mother receives the family home but the fact is actually that the amount of child support is completely unaffected by whether the mother received the family home or not whether she's paying rent or not correct well very often uh, a man will say to the mother I'll give you less child support going forward but I'll give you a bigger percentage of the home now so as you can afford to retain it. Often, women who have children to support can't afford to buy the man out of the home. They don't have access to enough capital. So the system allows the man to effectively pay lump sum child support and require the mother to pay him out less to retain the home than what would otherwise be the case. If the parties are going to embark upon that as part of their property settlement, they need to be absolutely clear about what's going on. How much of the money that the mother doesn't have to pay the father to buy him out is to be attributed to child support. And the orders need to be very clear about that. So in, the, in, in a case like this, you would need a binding agreement because the assessment, of course, wouldn't take that into account. Well, the court can make orders like that as well as part of the property settlement and children's case, the court can make child support orders, setting the amount of child support going forward at a reduced figure because the man has given the mother a bigger share of the property. The court can make orders or the parties can then enter into a binding child support agreement. It's just that if they're all at court in the one case arguing about property and children and child support, it's better to have it in one document in a court order. So to summarize how to reduce child support payments, there are basically four legal ways. One is to increase your care ratio if you have an assessment, if you have a, a binding agreement, then of course it's not affected. But number one is to increase your care ratio. Number two is reduce your income by changing careers or working less. Number three is to run a business and have self-employed income because it gives you a lot more flexibility. Number four is, and that's not really, we just discussed this, it doesn't really work. Number four is going overseas to a country that isn't a reciprocating country. And then number five is illegal and highly advised against. Number five is working for cash. These are ways to reduce child support payments, but is there anything else? It's not just as easy as reducing your income because if you are a, a high earning individual and you change your pattern of earning, either the court or the child support agency can ignore what you've actually done and charge you on your capacity to earn income. I mentioned before about lifting the corporate veil in relation to people who run through companies and so on and so forth. This law is contained in section 117.2 of the Child Support Assessment Act. What it basically does is allow the court or the child support agency to ignore such things, ignore what you're actually earning and look at your capacity to earn. If you're a, a highly paid surgeon and decide you're going to chuck it all in and move to Byron Bay and start writing poetry for a living and your income drops to zero, that's not going to work because the agency or the court will assess you on your capacity to earn income. In terms of reducing child support, my general advice to people 
is to discuss this with the other party. Okay, find out what is motivating, it's often her, what is motivating her? Does she, for instance, want the children to attend a private school? If they do, you might be able to pay the private school fees. Or are there other ways that you can satisfy what she wants to happen uh, and in return she gives you something back in return? And it ought not be just about reducing child support. These are children. They need both parents, both emotionally and financially. If at all possible, you should be working together with the mother or the father to find the best outcomes for not just you, but for your children. If you take artificial steps to reduce your child support, which are unreasonable, sooner or later, that's going to impact upon the relationship with the children. They will find out whether the mother tells them or in due course, they carry out their own investigations and it will not be healthy to your relationship. It's certainly not healthy to them. The children should be able to share in the financial resources of both parents. And if you approach it like that and approach the other parent like that and be reasonable, often in my experience, compromises can be found to keep both parents happy. Welcome back. So a child support agreement is kind of set in stone. It is what you agree to unless you both agree to change it or one of you goes to court. But with a child support assessment, your support payments change based on your child support income and the number of nights. But changing your child support income is difficult as an employee unless you change careers and slash or work less. But... If you run your own business, you can influence your child support payments. Here's another comment from Simon Bacon about the role of accountants when it comes to child support. But in my experience, tax agents as well often get caught up in the actual dispute. Say if a payer, if a, if, if, if a client of a tax agent is due a refund, and uh, from the child support uh, from the tax office but has a child support debt the child support agency will often issue what's called a section 72a notice to the accountant and say look when that person's tax refund arrives you don't send it to him you send it to us so tax agents are involved on many levels in child support not just advising clients about the best way to structure their affairs but they can actually be personally involved I've had many uh, accountants who thought they were going to get paid from the tax refund they were obtaining for their client, only to have that garnished by the child support agency. In the next episode, episode 282, Tim Gars and Dan Osborne of Cats Accountants at the Central Coast will share their insights with you about running their practice. You might know Tim and Dan from the legendary podcast, The Two Drunk Accountants. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Music